0: Hey there, everybody! This is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Interview Podcast. Uh, we're a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and we appreciate all of your uh, all of your support. Um, this is a really important um, conversation I'm having today, and so I don't want to spend too much time delaying before we get there. As all of you know who are listening. The last, you know, well, all of 2020 has been an abject disaster, right? But um, the last month in in particular, since the killing of George Floyd, um, there's been a lot of civil unrest, and um, I have a guest on today who is going to speak to a lot of that, and I'm really... anxious to hear what he has to say about all this. Um, but before I do want to make one quick plug, if I can beg the, <laughs> the indulgences of my guest here. Uh, we have a new show on the network. It happens to be hosted by my wife, Kim Anderson, um, and it's about environmental issues and faith. Um, it's called Restoration, a creation care podcast, and she's got a Facebook page and uh, and it's up on iTunes and all that. So I'd love it if you took a minute to go to the Facebook page and like it there and uh, subscribe and give it a nice review on itunes that'll help more people find the show uh so more people can take part of that conversation so i'm real proud of her and so i have to uh take a minute to give her a plug there for that so um on to the topic at hand today though i am joined by dr travis harris um dr harris how you doing
1: Hey, I'm good. I'm a lamb, so I'm good.
0: Yeah, also known as Hood Scholar. Um, that's, that's right, Hood Scholar. That's how people are going to find you. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that name? You you kind of um, study and research um, a really interesting subject, and I'll let you talk about it, about hip-hop. And yeah, so
1: basically I, I call myself Hood Scholar because I'm actually from the hood. So I grew up in the hood. I lived that hood life. Um, I was fortunate to, I guess I kind of like, I snuck into UVA for undergrad. <laughs> and then um pretty much matriculated on to get my PhD. So I got a PhD so I'm, that's why I call myself Hood Scholar because I'm a scholar who's actually from the hood. Okay. And let me
0: just ask you while you're on that top- topic because that speaks to me um, about someone who wasn't kind of born into academia either. My parents were hillbillies from West Virginia, right? And uh, yeah. um, And like is there something about like maintaining some other kind of identity um beyond this professional one right that's attractive to you right so so
1: i've so I've had this conversation a lot and in many ways I think that academia is anti human mm. and if you think about this like if you think about all the components like you spend literally hours by yourself alone studying <laughs> that's that's not, that's not what you do when you go to conferences conferences have really turned into you go see and meet your particular group, but then you would literally not speak to or not engage with other people. I was literally at a conference one time where this other um scholar, we were talking face to face and she took out her cell phone in the middle of our conversation and started looking at it. And it's just like things that happen in the academy like this would never happen like outside of the academy without being some type of repercussions. Right. Yes. <laughs> like, Yes. So just um, because of the many ways was the Academy's anti-human, um, for me, maintaining my own. So in, so the anti-humanness of the Academy pretty much aims to erase one's identity. And so we think about our backgrounds, which which is improper, maybe considered unprofessional. Um, We wouldn't even fit into the Academy at all. But I would but I made the decision where like, well, one, I actually even I gave like thought to the, the potential of acting, quote unquote, academic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And like I just couldn't do it. But also just like I need to be myself because even if I in changing myself, I wouldn't even I, I think I wouldn't even produce good scholarship anyway, because that's what I know is in a lot of you try to you change yourself to fit this particular mode. And this mold produced this like very performative um, aesthetic and this very performative work that really doesn't speak to anybody, except for the esoteric academic audience.
0: I could not agree with you more. Like, I I feel really feel like you're a kindred spirit here. I, I happen to work at a sister's and, and, you know, I love my job. I love teaching at this little college. I work at Mount Aloysius College in uh, Crescent, Pennsylvania, and I love my actual job. Right. And one of the things I actually love about it is that we're not on the tenure track. Right. And so we're kind of like oh. an, we're an off the grid sort of college. And I feel like within academia, that's always been kind of looked down on, you know, that you were right, a right, real right. legitimate scholar, right? If you're, if you went that way. Um, and I feel like what, the effect of it is, is it liberated me to actually do things that I'm actually interested in. Right. And so oh, nice, they nice. appreciate that I do this podcast. Right. And, and that wouldn't count yeah. as scholarship or work. Right. Um, for right, right, if, right, right. And, and yeah, there's a way in which this kind of professionalism, um, it, with this kind of machinery of, uh, of academic professionalism just, um, consumes, um, the individual identity. And I think you said it beautifully. It's a, it's an inhuman, uh, an anti-human, yeah. um, uh, activity sometimes and so yeah I uh, I, I think I, I picked up some of that with uh, with your branding I suppose and
1: uh, <laughs> yeah you, know, you got it
0: and yet um, so you've got a book out that you've edited with Erica Galt, um, Gault G A U L T for the listeners um, called Beyond Christian Hip Hop A Move Toward Christians and Hip Hop so I want to talk about that but yeah to me that th- if you read this book and I highly recommend everybody do it um, Travis was nice enough to send me a copy of it and I was able to read it and uh, I'm going to have my library here uh, I'm going to request at least. So they order a copy of it and, um, and, uh, and for other people to enjoy, but it is, a, it fits within like scholarship, uh, in the kind of formally defined, um, way that academia does that. So w- why don't you talk a little bit about this book? Um, I think it's terrific before, and I think it's not unrelated to a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking yeah. about with race here on, uh, throughout the rest of the show though. So why don't you go ahead and riff on
1: that? Yeah. So really like it'll, it'll really start, um, it's crazy how, how you made that connection between the book and how I identify as hood scholar because that's a very apt connection in that in the hood, right? Um, hip-hop is a, a, a major part of the hood, of of my hood that I grew up with. And what I, what I did with the book, right, I really wanted to bring a scholarly view to this ongoing conversation of what some so um let me give you the trajectory right back what was in 1985 like the the point a lot of people t- start off with is stephen wiley's um bible break in 1985 right and they'll start there and they're talking about christian rap music mm-hmm. and i personally probably in the 90s um heard of quote unquote Christian rap? I say quote unquote because I explained that later. But heard about Christian rap because, like everybody, right? I'm I'm imagining your listeners probably have heard of DC talk, right? Oh sure, yeah. So they've heard of DC talk, um, and then like then you have, and this is like personally. So I heard about gospel gospel gangsters, um, and then like Kurt Franklin has some stuff where he will feature rappers, but it really wasn't until and then you get to like Cross Me, right? So, um. And this is the '90s, and I literally was just talking to somebody about this the other day. But if you think about the '90s as far as hip hop and, and and black music, it's at like its peak because this is the time period of Biggie, Tupac, Eric D. Rock, Kemp. Like, so hip hop was thriving, and I'm fortunate enough to say that that was my my growing up. So, like, I was in high school in um, 1998, 1999. So um, I have a story to say that. So I grew up listening to quote unquote Christian rap. At the same time, I I, I am hip hop because that was a part of my, my upbringing, right? And it actually started in seminary. Um, so I went to seminary. And while I was in seminary, I, during my church history class, the we you know how at, whenever you like first start a class you go around and do the introductions yeah so during my introductions i said i can tell you the history of and i think at that time was still calling it like christian rap or, or christian i can tell you the history of christian rap the first thing my church history professor said to me was that could be a dissertation <sighs> i was like so you think about it right um i'm a second year seminary student realizing that you can literally do scholarship on hip hop and Christianity so i was like oh so that was the point where i was like oh i want to pre- pursue a phd um i wrote my master's thesis for seminary on what i was at that time calling holy hip hop and while i when i did that um i actually was on the the like the cusp of this new emerging field of religion and hip hop studies. Hmm. So my my master's of divinity, I finished that in 2011. One of the key texts um and have you heard of, you have you heard of Daniel White Hodge? Um I don't believe I have. You should check out a lot of his work. Okay. He has um a podcast Theology of the Profane, but he's um I think he actually used to be a youth minister. I can't remember, but he of course he was involved with the church on exam hip hop. Well his his key text, Soul of Hip Hop, comes out in 2010. So think about it, his key text comes out in 2010. I write my master's thesis in 2011. You write out like it just <laughs> right, right. It just so happened right. So I'm I'm into it. I'm into it. But the more I research it, I was like, I felt like the conversation didn't really speak to both what I was experiencing in the hood and this thing that we call hip-hop. So I was like, all right, what is it? Because, it, like, and, and we was talking about this a little bit before, air, but, like, when you hear DC talk, right? Yeah. Does that make you think of hip-hop?
0: No, (laughs) I I have opinions, but I don't I don't necessarily want to like I don't know that I'm qualified necessarily to kind of chime in when I'm talking to you, who I think is much more qualified to talk about. But
1: you see what I'm saying, though, right? You don't think of D.C. talk as hip hop.
0: So correct me then if where I'm wrong uh, in what I'll say about it is it feels like um, kind of like the way Elvis Presley took African-American music and repackaged it for white people. Um, This this feels like that to me.
1: Um, and yeah then, okay <laughs> and but you know and you know what's crazy because DG Talk was actually the first group the first quote unquote Christian rap group to get a Grammy right so let that sink in right Right. It's like whoa alright so they get a Grammy Um. and I listened to this music and then I really I actually um, what was that 2011 oh so also think about what else is thinking about think about what's going on with hip-hop and Christians during this time period while I'm in seminary. Mm-hmm. This is the rise of Reach Records, mm-hmm. right? So I'm sure you, your listeners people heard of Lecrae, right? Right. You got Lecrae, you got Tadashi, and um, Trip Lee. And and what happened was, also while I'm in seminary, taking my systematic theology cast, Trip Lee releases Real Vision, and Real Vision's like, I don't know what you heard. I don't know what you heard. I don't, I don't, I don't. And in that song, he's talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mm. So I'm like, yo, like, this is just literally just blowing my mind. Like, so you got these dudes, right? These young black men talking about the personal work of Jesus Christ. Tadashi literally says homo usia in a rap song. <laughs> 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 That's crazy, right? Yeah so all of this is happening and i was like oh i need to look i need to look more into this i need to pay more attention to this right and as i do so i realized that wow i actually had an um ontological understanding of hip-hop i had a hip-hop in which i understood and would your listen listeners know what I mean by ontological, or should I?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think so, but go ahead if you want to clarify.
1: Yeah, so, like, I had an understanding of hip-hop that was based on my lived reality. Right. So, like, um, throughout my life, I, I understand hip-hop to be this. But then as I studied the scholarship more, I was realizing that my I had even though I had this ontological or embodied understanding of hip hop, I didn't fully develop it theoretically. So after um seminary, after I finished my master's thesis, I actually got into hip hop. Well, actually no, it was while I was working on my master thesis, I actually got into hip hop studies. And hip hop studies led me to having a more fuller understanding of hip hop to the point where it finally fully manifests in the book. Yeah. So let me break that down. So when I say hip hop, what do I mean? Um, the most like straightforward and simplistic way to describe it is we gotta think about the four the four elements: rapping slash MCing, graffiti, b boy and b girl b girling, and DJing. So when hip hop manifests in the Bronx, all four of those elements. Were present. Um, as you can see now, which you can probably tell from my story, I moved from this understanding of, of hip hop that was solely based on the music to looking at the broader culture. Yeah. That makes
0: sense. Yes, and I gotta say, let me just um, bracket the yeah, conversation a second. I really appreciate. I mean, this kind of goes back to our original conversation about academia being exclusive or whatever. How you're you take care to to that people know what you mean when you're using academic right. terms, right? And that comes across in your work in general, right? And
1: oh man, I appreciate yeah. that, man, because because that's the thing, and that's what I wanted. That's what I feel like hip hop does. It speaks to the people, yeah. right? Yes, and that's why I felt like the scholarship wasn't as as it wasn't going in the direction I wanted to go because I wanted to speak to the people.
0: Yeah, and and that's something that like annoys me personally when you take something that is um, by its nature popular and then you make right. then you you privatize it and you make it only for people with this esoteric. kind of esoteric kind of gnostic kind of knowledge about it, right? And so yeah, um, and so that's that's a failing of academia. That's a part of what academia's um, cult of specialization,
1: I think, breeds, right? And so so with that, right. Um I I develop a more thorough definition of hip-hop, right to so where now and which which I talk about in the book, and this is kind of complicated but I try to say it as plain as possible, but I will identify hip-hop as an African diasporic phenomenon that um provides an identity, and collective consciousness. And mm-hmm. that's a lot. So let me try to break that <laughs> down. <laughs> okay. So, um, one just thinking about this from like culture studies, not cultural, but culture. Like looking at the study of cultures. Um, th- no culture is static, and um, culture is constantly fluid, constantly changing, constantly made and remade. Right. There are So what happens, right, when we think about the history of African peoples, we got to think about the multiple African cultures that were made and remade throughout history, leading up to the transatlantic slave trade. So this is where we start to begin to think about the the notions of ethnicity and race. Mm -hmm. But um, just a very brief African history. There was migration and movements throughout Africa for thousands of years, right? But proceeding, right proceeding up to the transatlantic slave trade, there was a, a cultural interchange between Africans and Europeans, Africans, um, and Asians, Africans and Arabs, Africans, um, and then there was also Africans who were Christians, right? Right. And Africans who were Muslims and Africans who had their own worldview before the transatlantic slave trade. Right. And this is important because later on, we we'll get to a point where we talk about the white man's religion. And then that that, that takes on a whole different um, narrative and conversation than what I'm talking about now. But during this time period, right, there's all these cultural exchanges. I call it just to use on um, hip hop terminology, cyphers and flows. Mm. So there's these flows. Right. And if, if we think about this and we can kind of imagine there's these flows culturally between different African peoples and different peoples throughout that time period, leading up to, we can say, 15, um, sixteenth, 17th century, okay? So what happens then, when we get to the transatlantic slave trade, they bring all those cultures, etc over with them to the British colonies. And to the um the Spanish colonies, the Portuguese colonies, et cetera, which which becomes the Americans, right? Right. So and there's literally documentations of Africans bringing drums, um different musical instruments, et cetera. And then of course we we know about like the bear rabbit stories, with, which brings maintains African knowledges, et cetera, right? So all this comes over with the transatlantic slave trade. And then so with that right you you bring in of course all the horrors and traumas of slavery, right but contrary, I actually argue against some some um um scholars would say that the transatlantic slave trade wiped away African culture. have you you heard about that? um yeah,
0: that's yeah that's a that's a kind of standard <laughs> that's one standard yeah. kind of view of it, right.
1: Yeah, so they're wrong. They're like completely wrong. Okay, okay. <laughs> right? I mean, um, there you can say there's a, a a variance. Um, there's some changes between like maybe if you look at more isolated regions of slavery in the north or parts of Virginia, um, compared to like plantations in Virginia and South Carolina, or definitely in the Caribbean, where you literally have plantations of hundreds of Africans. Right. Like it's um, how can you wipe away a culture of people who are that close together, and they're continually bringing in new, more and more people, on a regular basis, right? Right. So, so um, and then also the process of culture making is, in culture just doesn't stop. Right. It just continues. It just continues to flow and cycle. Flow and cycle. You see what I'm saying? Right? I do. Yeah. So, um, to wrap it all up. These cycles and flows continue the transatlantic slave trade, and then continue on now in this new, um, in this strange land, this new reality. So now, when, we, when you get to the um 70s, you have these group of people, and that and see this is the interesting part that people don't realize when you think about the the history of hip hop. There were people. So Cool Herc was from Jamaica. Um, African Mambado is from Barbados you got people who had migrated north right cuz remember the great migration from the south you had people who had came from Puerto Rico and they're all there in the Bronx right so all of these cultural interchanges i would, i say manifest in the early 1970s and becomes hip hop yeah and in a lot of ways
0: it's kind of uh kind of corollary to what happens in the Harlem renaissance right you've got this yep, kind of yep. um uh this playpen <laughs> where all this uh, rich culture is gathered together and is an explosion of, uh, of creativity exactly. from that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you can even say that, that, that cipher and flow, that flow from the Harlem Renaissance contribute to the ciphers that that took place in the Bronx.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really, I mean, it's a beautiful image when you think about it, it yeah. you, you've got this kind of like, um, continuity with the past that isn't mired in the past, kind of right. There's right, this right. Uh, perpetual invention um, that that kind of view of of the way culture works, I think, is 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 really kind of powerful and
1: beautiful. Um, go ahead. And so and so say this, and then you go to the next question. So I just wanted to describe it that way again. So when we talk about hip hop, we not just talking about Lil Wayne. Yeah. We not just talking about Drake. Right. We are talking about all of these cultural processes. That manifests in in the four different elements in so many different other ways. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and some of it's commercial, right? And some of it is right. is more organic, right?
1: And then, but then if you bring in commercial, then you got to bring in capitalism.
0: Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Which becomes, in a lot of hip-hop, I mean, that becomes the subject matter of a lot of hip-hop, right? right? right. Um, the, in the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely, right? And, and so, no, it's uh, it's a beautiful and kind of like, um, like endless topic that you're interested yeah. in. And I think that your approach to it is great. Again, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about it, but the book is called Beyond Christian Hip-Hop. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, a, a Move Toward Christians and Hip-Hop. So um, I want to talk about the... The way you frame that title, I suppose. Yeah. So, Christian hip hop then is a kind of limiting term,
1: if not problematic, um, for you. Exactly. So, so what I tried to do, right? I wanted to, I, I wanted to be true to the people because there is a self-identified group of Christian hip hop. Mm-hmm. So there are people who say that we are Christian hip hop, um, and I want to be true to them because in the scholarship. They actually haven't gotten that much attention, mm-hmm. right? Um, So we got that group. But even within that group, so this is where Lecrae becomes famous, right? Because did you hear about what Lecrae said?
0: Like recently or back in?
1: Maybe a couple of years ago, like maybe five or six years ago.
0: I remember that that conversation. Yeah, I want you like recapitulate. Yeah, so yeah. basically Lecrae, Lecrae says that <laughs> Say it again. I'm not a
1: Christian <laughs> rapper. Yeah. And and what and and basically actually um what I did after I finished my thesis, my first academic article was actually on Lecrae. Mm -hmm. And what and what Lecrae does is he helps us to think about um the the shortcomings of this moniker of Christian rap and Christian hip-hop. So so with that, right, based on what I just described hip-hop to be, Mm -hmm. how do you My concern was how do you capture all of that in the term Christian rap? Right. (laughs) So Christian rap is literally just talking about rap music. Right. So you literally need to leave out all the other elements, all the cultural flows, all the ciphers, the identity, the collective conscience. Forget about all that. Let's just talk about rap music, right? So this is huge because if all the conversations is on rap music, that means we are having a very limited conversation. Yeah. Right. We're literally talking about a small piece of a much more global phenomenon. So I was like, All right, we can't just call it Christian rap, Christian hip hop. Christian hip hop is a little bit better. But um, which like so a very simplistic argument is, are we saying that hip hop? Are we saying that Christianity now is an adjective to describe something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And that's the argument a lot of people heard. Right. But going beyond that. Right. What I question is, what is it that we actually mean by Christians, right? And what is it that we mean by Christianity? So, this brings in what I mentioned earlier with the white man's religion. Um, hip hop, when it manifests in the seventies, was a. Um, so you think about like some of the most like the most popular songs of hip hop, right? Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. Uh-huh. We're trying it not to lose, Uh, 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 make you want to some, so like, they're living in a jungle, right, and they're responding to dispossession, um, literal, like, burning fires, because you remember that the Bronx was burning, right, yeah, so burning fires, you're being kicked out of your homes, they have one of the highest unemployment rates, you have the release of the Moynihan Report, yeah, right, all during that time period, Benign neglect. We are not even gonna um invest into these communities, welfare mm-hmm. mamas, um, just this like base basically like co where this covert racism being pushed out, right? Because they don't wanna call you don't wanna just straight up call them like um the N-word or put them down or but so then you like pathologize them, right? So you have all this pathology and all so these were literally oppressed, disenfranchised young people who said that our life matters. We have value, and we're going to speak out against the system. So then, why would you then? And we think about the colonial project. We think about colonialism. Is it being intertwined with Christianity? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, uh, uh the most straightforward way of saying that is the slave owners. Yeah, those who were whipping yeah. were Christian. Yeah, right. So it's like. How could, how could you bring those two together? Yeah. Right? How can you be a Christian that is oppressive and um, perpetuating white supremacy while also being hip hop that fights against white supremacy?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um gosh, you and and this is just the tip of the iceberg of this book. Um right. and, and a, as you were talking, I remembered you mentioned um Daniel White Hodge. One of the essays in this book um is kind of about this, about the white man's religion, right? Um, yeah. um and and so um I apologize for for blanking on no, that that's name no earlier. Problem. It's been a couple months since I read this, but um but no. And so it actually also reminds me of attention um, I teach a class here um, about the art and literature of Pittsburgh, and so August Wilson was, of course, like a, we have uh, yeah, a whole unit yeah. on August Wilson. So Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is a, a great play about um, Ma Rainey, the the blues singer. Kind yeah. of, and her relationship with the guy who owns the white man who owns the studio, sort of, right? Um, uh, and and then that kind of power dynamic that comes with yeah. with the means of production um, to use,
1: you know, right, Literally, right. The, that March term. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And so, um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of ways in which um, capitalism and kind of white evangelicalism then serve the same kind of purpose, uh, uh, and the, and then when Christian hip-hop or christian rap or whatever it becomes a marketing genre for for those institutions that's kind of what you're trying to go beyond i think when you're talking about exactly
1: so i'm saying we need to go beyond just this very narrow right conception of what it means to be a christian this very young very because a lot of us feel just like, so think about how much new information I just provided. Yeah. A lot of people don't, didn't understand what hip hop is. A lot of people still think about hip hop being rap music. And then a lot of people are still thinking about Christian hip hop or Christian rap being DC talk or whatever, like whatever association they have with. It. And so we, it's so much unpacking yeah. just with that. Right. So, okay. So now we got that. Now it's like, all right. How do we make sense of someone who, like um, Boy Wonder, mm-hmm. Boy Wonder is a, a producer. Uh, he's a hip hop producer, right? He doesn't call him. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't say I'm a, a Christian producer. He's actually produced for a lot of the mainstream um, rappers. Mm-hmm. And guess what? He's a Christian. So then I was like, oh, hold on. And then and then we think about. Um, there's there's this street artist in Chicago, right? And a street art is a, a basically a legalized form of graffiti. Mm-hmm. So there's this graffiti street artist um in Chicago, who has created like these um these paintings etc. Right? But he doesn't call himself a Christian graffiti artist, but he's a Christian, right? And then there's people. So we got graffiti. We got like um. And I talk about this in the book. Um, they they become is is the journey, um, is this group that they eventually become rappers. But when they first started breaking in the park out on the West Coast, right? That's another thing. It's like these regional boundaries you put on there, sure. right? Sure. But they're when they're breaking in the park, they don't call themselves Christian breakers. They're like we're just breakers. So I'm like, hold on. They are Christians, right? All the artists, I mean the graffiti artist, the breaker. The um, the the producer, they all are like they say I'm a Christian, but they don't particularly call what they're doing Christian. Yeah. So I'm like, how do we make sense of that? And then we think about Kendrick, like the most popular examples, like Kanye West, Kendrick Lamar, um, or like like these rappers who like say thank thank you God at the award show. I'm like, hold on, how do we make a sense of that? Because in all these different instances, right, you see how many tentacles this is? Yeah. In all these different instances, there's this interaction between hip hop and Christianity. Yeah. So I say, look, Christian hip hop doesn't account for all that. Christian rap doesn't account for all that. So we need to go beyond Christian hip hop and and look at the intersections between the two. Yeah, and that's um.
0: Can I, if I can, like uh, for yeah, some of ahead. my listeners who don't know hip hop, uh, as I don't um as much as I should. I'm learned. I've learned a lot, by the way, by looking at this book. Um, my iTunes, uh, uh, whatever, has changed quite a bit. Um, and so. The, the, it's kind of corollary to earlier, on earlier episodes of this show, we've talked about like Kirk Cameron movies, right? Um, in a way in which Christians kind of retreat from challenging material, um, because they want this kind of wholesome, uh, dogmatic kind of form of art that kind of fits neatly within the worldview rather than sort right. of challenging it at all. Right. And so you, that's where you get things like pure flicks um, and, and other art, other art forms that works the same way. Um, and so this is kind of corollary to what you're talking about. And so yeah, that tendency, that Christian tendency to, to want that out of art, um, something that's just kind of representative of what we already think rather than challenging of what we already think um, um, is it finds its way into Christian rap or Christian what the old genre they used to call Christian rap and now Christian hip hop yeah. or whatever they call it as well. Um, and it's, re- it's reductive, right? And it kind of erases right, the right. experience of people who don't work within that market slot, right? <laughs> you've, got, um, you've got Christians who work in mainstream music circles, right? Um, and that's kind yeah. of what you're interested in is that intersection towards Christians and hip hop, which requires an engagement with the world that a lot of Christian art um, retreats from.
1: Right. And, and and an interesting piece of history, though, right? Guess who's responsible for Chris, the, the quote-unquote Christian rap and Christian hip-hop genre?
0: Um, I, Can I just say Carmen just to make a joke? I,
1: <laughs> but no, go ahead. That is funny. I, I remember him. He's wearing those suits, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, that's funny. It's actually the music industry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was the music industry that labeled that 1985 on um, this Christian rap, and in this interview with Cross Movement, they said that because of what was going on in the 90s, they didn't think that they actually had to overtly call themselves Christian. Yeah, it was like everybody had some level of God consciousness. So when they actually, it was the late the the music industry that said, "Look, we gotta find somewhere to put you." So. Since we got to find somewhere to put you, how about we label you as, which is kind of crazy, right? They're, they're a label, Yeah. Right? but then we label you as Christian rap. Yeah. So then like, think about like, and we could literally just have a whole conversation about that, where it's no longer about the message, the content, what the artist is driven by, but capitalism, how we're going to market you and how we're going to make this money
0: you become a commodity, um, to be bought and sold. Right. And and that has within the black community and black history, that's got sort of terrifying, um, like historical right. precedent. Right. And so, right. yeah. Um, and I guess, I mean, forgive me if this is too abrupt of a transition into, no. into current events, but I think since we're talking about the way in which, um, white institutions, both economic and religious, um, are, um, seek to kind of define and manage the Black experience, right? I think that's kind of underlying a lot of what's going on right now. And so um, and I'm obviously talking about the the, the protests since uh, the murder of George Floyd um, in a couple, about a month ago. And so I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on sort of current events.
1: Yeah, I actually want to build on what you were just saying about this bringing together of Economics and religion. Mm-hmm. So I think a good place to start will be with the transatlantic slave trade, and it's crazy because um. So I I actually in my as a scholar I was a religion mm-hmm. major undergrad went to seminary and then one of my fields um was religion one of my uh, examination fields for my PhD right, and and looking at the study of religion right um you, you can see the direct um, I wish I could remember their names, but you think about the, the early planters and the pioneers who came. They came for power. They came for wealth, right? So the the development of the United States of America is intertwined with the development of capitalism, Yeah. right? So then this literally brings together this the country, which was... A, founded by um these these quote unquote christians who were capitalists and entrepreneurs yeah and so like the, i was just bringing that up because the whole slavery project and the development this is the this is the fabric of what makes this country and in that process you have the commodification of human beings right so this one scholar she said it this way um she said Instead of thinking about the middle passage, we need to think about um the 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 trip from Africa to the colonies as saltwater slavery. Mm. That's interesting, right? Yeah. Because middle passage is is uh okay, we already know where the destination is, right? But for for the Africans who were enslaved, they had no idea where they were going. Yeah. And then what she's also saying is this is the she says that from the barracoons and the littorals with you know what I mean by the barracoon? No. So um in Africa, there were um on the shores. There were holding spaces for Africans who had been a slave who was going to be brought over to the to the colonies. OK, so at these these holding spaces were were called barracoons and the littoral is like the place where the land and the sea meets. Mm. So at these spaces, right, there there that starts the dehuman dehumanization process, right? Mm. But while they're literally on the journal uh, on the journey during saltwater slavery, they change from humans to when they finally reach the colonies to commodities. Yeah. So literally, what she's arguing is, and it's Stephanie Walt Smallwood. This book called Saltwater Slavery. What she's arguing is, the saltwater slavery is the very thing that dehumanizes African African peoples, right? So then they be, they are now commodity objects and products, yeah, as the enslaved, and then right to bring this all together, right? So this so. So basically, they're saying that black life doesn't ma- doesn't matter, right? And with that, right, then also what happens during slavery is the development of patrols, slave patrols. Hmm. What, what was the role of slave patrols? They had two primary functions: to um make sure that the enslaved keep the enslaved um, from running away, and to protect property. Right. And do you know who are uh, who, what, um, what institution comes out of slave patrols? Um, well, ultimately the police, right? <laughs> exactly. yeah. yeah. So you see how this all comes together? Yeah. So if you look at the foundation of, of what this country is, this is literally just a manifestation of what has been in going on for literally centuries.
0: Yeah. And I think what's important about what you're saying, um, that I want to emphasize, at least it's all important, but the, the idea that this isn't just a parallel, like you can't, the, the slave patrols aren't just like a corollary to the modern police. Like the modern police is a development of the, of, of the slave patrols. Right. Um, And, and that's, uh, and yeah, and that gets left out when you talk, I guess then I was unaware of the, that um, saltwater slavery book. um, But now that i think about it the term middle passage is kind of a a term narrated from you know white people's experience of the of the experience um right and and not from the the slaves themselves and so um it's useful to use a different term then to kind of resituate for the perspective from which we're looking at this
1: right Um, for the africans yeah so then, right so and we think about what's going on today right this isn't uh a uh, uh, contemporary problem where, for some people, it became real with Trayvon Martin. Right. For most of the world, it became real with Michael Brown. Right. That was like the point where everybody was arguing about what I actually call it police terrorism. Right. Um. But popularly, p- police brutality. Um. And just real quick, the reason why I call it terrorism because it's so much more that happens. Um. Beyond just the 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 hurtful act of either being beaten or being killed by the police right because it's literally a terror it's literally terrorism and that i personally and many other black people i know are afraid for our lives when we come in contact with the police right and that's because of this ongoing trauma that we've seen so Um, for the contemporary conversation, a lot of people point to Michael Brown. Mm -hmm. What, what I'm trying to do by pointing back to slavery is situate this into how entrenched it is into what it means to be American and how we're going to understand the problem. So there's not, this is not a contemporary problem, but this is a generational problem that, so if you think about it that way, then you can say, um, Police terrorism is linked to lynchings, which is linked to slavery, and they all were overt, brutal, um, overt, brutally, terrorist um, actions. And and it's
0: interesting then when we when people use the term like defund the, the phrase defund the police, right? Yeah. Um, that's very uh, controversial right now. That that terminology, right, right, right. but. Um, and i don't know I actually know how you feel about that term um but it, it seems to me that what it's getting at is the dismantling. this isn't just a problem of bad apples i guess um right, it, the right, barrel right. itself is rot- it produces the bad apples there's some sort of de- there's some sort of structural problem be- because this was constructed upon those kind of um bleak beginnings, right? Um and, yeah, yeah. and so defunding is sort of deconstructing um the nature of law enforcement. Um, um but um I would actually love for you to um yeah elaborate so, and correct
1: me and, and educate I, me actually, on this. Uh, let me share this I have I have I have one story I feel like is incontrovertible basically like you cannot argue against this when it comes to the good apples, bad apples spoops. So um you, well, you say you saw my videos. Did you know I went to Minneapolis? No, I haven't. I didn't see that one. Okay. Okay, so I actually went to Minneapolis. I was on Ground Zero, literally days after George Floyd was killed. So okay. I was actually there before they started the curfew. Right. And um, one of the days, like second or third day, I was there. We were peacefully protesting. No vandalism, no looting, none of that. Um, and they arrested us. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, let me briefly tell you, because it's a long story, but briefly, they um we were peacefully protesting all in a the group. They pretty much cornered us in on every single side. And you gotta think about it, this is like SWAT team, police, all riot gear, everything. They um shoot us with rubber bullets, mm. they tear gas us, and then they lay us down on our stomach in the in the same place that we tear gas for mm. hours. So after all of that, it's literally 200 people, right? So they arrest, like they bring in buses and vans and they line us all up. Literally tie us up and and guess what? It was a black man in front of me. And you know what it felt like? Mm. That same exact process during slavery. Gather all their slaves up, tie them up and line them up. So while this is happening, right, um, you can say that i was talking to a good cop so let me share this conversation because i feel like a lot of listeners will resonate with that cop the cop said that um he was like yeah man like first he was like we really don't want to do this like we agree with you all because like we don't we don't like what what um the person who killed george floyd did like we don't agree with that at all and we understand and he was like man we we don't want. It. We just have to do this because the governor wants to cut down on. It's like okay, so we're talking. We're talking. I was like, so like, why did you become a police officer? And He was like, yeah, I want to become. I want to become one because I want to keep drunk drivers off the road. Mm. I was like, oh, that actually makes good. It makes sense. That's very admirable. And he's um, so he's like a. He's like a. I think he was a state police or something like that. So he, he doesn't even do local policing. He, he's primarily on the highways. He's like, he want to keep the highway safe. So if, if there's someone who's drinking and driving on the highway, he want to. do it. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And so then what he does next, he ties me up. Like, right? he cussed me. I was like, oh, okay. So he cussed me. We're still talking. He's like, yeah, man. like in um, my So I tell him, I was like, yeah, it's, it's just hard for me to deal with police because I've been pulled over more than 25 times. I got stopped in front of my house where I live because I look suspicious. He was like, yeah, well, I don't, I think those officers are wrong. None of the officers I know um, would do that. And like, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't allow that to happen. I'm like, all right, cool. So if you listen to what he's saying, right, he sounds like a good cop. Now let's think about the situation. He tear gassed us. Mm. He laid us in tear gas for him and his other cops, laid us in tear gas for an hour. And he arrests me from peacefully protesting. Mm-hmm. So my question is this: How can you be a good cop and after George Floyd is choked out for nine minutes? You literally see death after death because right before George Floyd, Amal Arbery, and Christian, and all that stuff, you see all that happen. You recognize that what we're doing is the right way to respond because we're peacefully protesting, and you still arrest me. And Take me through this traumatic experience. And so to make it clear, let me make it clear. It's not so much as the cop's personal perspective or their intentions, but at the end of the day, it's their role in the system. Right. So even if they can be in their hearts and minds, non-racist, care about all people of all colors, they're still (laughs) tear gassing, shooting rubber bullets and arresting people.
0: Yeah. And and I have to like, and it's true. And it's, that's what makes this conversation so difficult for people to have though. Right. Because I know where I live because of where I live. Um, once, you know, coal became less used or whatever, um, jobs, the only jobs available in this region typically are prisons. Right. Uh, and so there's tons of prisons. So I happen to be friends um, with a lot of people who work at prisons and who are police officers. And I have a friend who's in the FBI. Right. And so, um, yeah. because that's, I mean, the work that they do. And, and so it's difficult for people to separate the the the, individ- the individual good, the good people yeah. that they know right um, from the institution that those people support and work in right um, and and that they're supported by um, those institutions right. as well and so um, I I don't there's no answer I'm not trying to like uh, yeah. I, I'm just saying that's part of why this is such a, a difficult uh, conversation to have with a lot of people and why it's so important that people listen I think to people like you um, who are giving us this perspective that we don't have.
1: Um, on our own, naturally. So to answer your question about defunding police, I actually, I guess I'm a little bit more to the left than you. Yeah. I think we just need to get rid of police altogether. Okay. And um, what I mean by that is, ideally, I would have a community where there are no police officers patrolling. And um, because like I shared in my experience, every single time, I an account I had an encounter with cop. It was for their base was raci, racially profiling. Mm-hmm. They weren't providing a good service. Um statistics, so people who have studied this, right, there's actually been a decrease in in crime rates where there wasn't um police activity involved. There's also like this long history, it's called this book I read is called Black Rage in New Orleans of like corrupt police forces. Mm-hmm. Where they're like literally like planting drugs on people, um, setting people up. They like the policemen are also the ones who are like the like drug dealers and all that stuff, right? Um, and then like there have been very few models of policing of uh, black folks where the interaction hasn't been harmful. So, I would like uh, a place where there's no police at all. And then so some of the conversations that defund the police have brought up was like, so, um, for example, the most recent killer was Shar right? The the example I've seen is instead of the police being called. So think about Rashad's situation. He was drunk. He was asleep in his car. I'm like that. that that's that. Honestly, that is terrifying to me because mm. I'm very busy. I don't sleep well because of so many traumatic experiences. I could very much fall asleep in my car one day. Right. I would hate to fall asleep in my car, wake up, and pretty much that'd be the last moments of my life. Mm. So what defund the police would look like, instead of calling the police, maybe you call a mental health um, associate or some type of service worker who comes and talks to this person, find out what's going on. Oh, you need a ride home? How about I try to get you a, I get you a ride home? How about I figure out what find somebody to bring your car back that person peacefully goes home they're no longer um bothering society and they're alive yeah
0: yeah i mean and you see like um i mean the the cell phone videos uh like that lady in central park who who, who called yeah made a false claim um that was caught on tape thank goodness right but um right. you see i mean that's used as an assertion of privilege and power right as a way to support um the privilege and power of of certain um groups and so yeah so many calls to police should not be made probably right Right. um and so and you're honestly your argument is compelling to me if we have other kinds of institutional interventions uh in those kinds of moments um we kind of De-escalate the uh, the problem. And so when we see these protests in which, you know, the police show up in like full like military armor and, and riot gear and it's like you're provoking a response at that point. If you didn't show
1: up at all, the violence may not have even happened. Right. Um, well, I can tell you firsthand being in Minneapolis that the police were the ones um invoking us. Yeah. And like the police, it was literally like the police actions. That led to us responding the way that we did. So the media present presents it in such a way that, oh, they just randomly got upset and they just started looting them. Actually, the protests start off peaceful. Yeah. And then um, well, so I can tell you in Minneapolis before everything started, it was peaceful. A police officer without any provocation at all, shot with rubber bullets at a young black a young um child a young girl and a woman and the crowd was like why are you doing this why are, i mean like uh, why would you shoot at a little girl period yeah. right and and then um there's another car with a woman and children in it and they shot the car
0: yeah
1: and that's what agitated the crowd so <sighs> think about the crowd is already upset because of the police killing so when they did that that's what all the tensions is brought over and And let's everything to happen.
0: Yeah. I yeah. I think like regardless of where anybody stands on defund the police, right? I think a a reasonable person will look at what becomes of a lot of police culture. um, As, uh, as uh, when you saw the, I don't know how to say it, but when you saw like the New York, I think he was the union boss up there ranting about the way police are being portrayed and stuff. Even even though for 50 years on television and movies, police are always like um, heroes. Right. You know what I mean? Right. 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 um, And so, yeah, there's like five minutes now in which people are criticizing police. um, but, and so you've got this kind of like, I guess the blue wall of silence, this kind of thin blue line um, you've got this, I don't want to call it like, like a gang, but when you have police with like the, get the Punisher logo tattooed to their arms, right. I mean, how is it not perceived as, as that? Right. And and then right. what are you actually serving when you partake of a culture like that? It's, it's less public service than it is. I think um, joining You know, an authoritarian structure in which you get to wield power, Um, at least that's the way it can be perceived. Um, Well,
1: so also think about it this way. Right. I mean, you don't have to personally respond, but think about how in many middle and upper class white neighborhoods, how the police police those neighborhoods.
0: Yeah. I, I live in one, uh, I gotta say, um, you never see them. Like I never, I never, see, the, there's a cross in PA you're supposed to stop for pedestrians and crosswalks. Um, nobody ever does, um, because no one ever gets pulled over for it, frankly. Right. And so right. there's one right in front of the police station that I've almost been run over in 10 times. Right. Um, wow. and, and because they do, they have no presence whatsoever. Um, Uh, Yeah, yeah.
1: So I mean, so it's like there you go, right? Yeah, like (laughs) that's like so. Literally, there are areas where without police presence and people are able to go on just fine.
0: It is. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's a really compelling argument you're making, I have to say. Um, And, and yeah, and and it's, I guess it goes, we've had, you brought up, brought up Moynihan um, earlier on. Um, And we go back to this kind of like what broken windows policing uh, concept about, you know, taking care of low level line uh, crime. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, what you've done, though, is like institute this kind of antagonism between your institution and the community it's supposed to be serving, right, Um, in in policing minor things that aren't really even crimes in some cases, right? right?
1: Or that, that you don't have to share your personal story. But I'm sure you know people who have done things that they did not get punished for that I know them the people i know did the same things they did get punished for
0: yeah oh yeah absolutely i'm sure i have i mean i've always been kind of a nerd so i, I yeah i'm kind of a you know whatever obsessive compulsive rule follower so I, oh, <laughs> i'm sure i'm I sure you. i've done things but I, I can't nothing comes to mind off the top of my head yeah
1: i mean um, not you but just other people you know well let, hey, do you, you know one? So, no one who's drunk before they were 21 years old oh yeah absolutely um, I mean, yeah. that's part of every movie
0: about white teenage life, right? Is going to a drunken party, right? and, right. The, and the cops show up, and it's a big joke, right? And, and that doesn't happen in in other communities, right? It's it's the fact that that can happen in places like that, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so. I guess what I want to talk about a little bit and we've been going almost an hour. I don't want, to, I want to be conscious of your time. Um, yeah, I'm good. Okay. Okay. Um, but, uh, I want to, there's a few things I want to hit on before we go and this has been so great. Can I ask you right now to come back often on the show? I, I'd love to have you back frequently. Uh, this has been such a fun conversation and and I've learned so much, not only from reading the book, but from talking to you. And I really appreciate oh, that. Um,
1: appreciate
0: it. but it's so, I guess what I'm interested in is to how to have the conversation with people who are resistant um, to these kinds of talk, the, the all lives matter crowd. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I, in, in particularly in religious circles, I think that there's like a, um, like a, Oh, whatever, a reactionary kind of um, support of these oppressive institutions on the basis of some principle um, that, I, I guess is understandable, but it also comes out of a place of ignorance. And so um, I want to talk a little bit about that. And so I, if I can real quickly um, the place I work, uh, I told you this off air uh, a month or two before everything happened before George Floyd and all that, we realized that we are in a community that is 96 or 7% white. And um, that when we do bring um, minority students, not, not just African-Americans, but international students and and Hispanic students um, to campus, they often um, aren't treated welcomingly right Uh, and so i hospitality is my thing as anybody (laughs) knows one of our four key concerns at the the college i work for is hospitality mercy justice hospitality and service are the four sisters of mercy values that we kind of focus on Um, and to me this is a a blatant failure of hospitality right Um, so from a religious standpoint um i'm kind of offended by the way um, minorities are treated in the community we live in. And so I'm actually part of a committee of, for multicultural affairs that we've been trying to work on this. And fortunately, we did start this beforehand, so it doesn't look like we're just kind of reacting. Oh, that's good. Um, and so yeah. it might look like that, but we actually did start this before any of this happened. Um, but And so um, what can like people on my committee, for example, say to people who are just like, Settled into this identity that, you know, cops are heroes, kneel for the, don't kneel, don't kneel at the flag, those kinds of like, um, those kinds of mindsets. Like, what, what can we do?
1: (laughs) I suppose. Yeah. So it's, I have a twofold response. But number one, um, I think what happens is either you all run from it or you all try to avoid it. But, what the the thing is, that's, that's that's present that might be even under your nose that, is that these are like your family members yeah exactly right so we aren't talking about like this person from a far off distance who have these views that they're holding on to. This is like your uncle, your cousin, your grandfather et cetera. So in many ways, this is an in-home conversation. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm like, so, so one thing you need to think about is, is this a conversation that people are just not having or trying to avoid or, um, or not dealing with? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's the first part. The, the second part is if y'all have had those conversations, um, that brings us to think about what's important, right? What is that verse to um t- to walk humbly and to do justice? Mm. Right? Um like so if you are a Christian, right, what does it mean to be a Christian if you hold these particular views of people? Mm. And 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 let me get give you a more fuller answer though, right? So this scholar um France Fanon, well he's a thinker actually, on um, France Fanon, he writes about colonization. Right. And he says that colonization is harmful to both the colonized and the colonizer. Right. Because it's like they have to perpetuate and do these very harmful acts. Like that cop that arrested you in Minneapolis. Exactly. Yeah. So think about it. So if you're the colonizer, right, it's also um hurtful. And, and then this links to another way. A lot of this is systemic. Right. And since it's systemic, unfortunately, a lot of see a lot of our conversations are like with the cop is based on the individual right So they're saying I'm not racist or I don't personally feel this way about people So with that right that they make they can say I can absolve myself of any guilt or anything that I've done wrong because I am indiv- I am individually fine. Mm-hmm. Well the problem isn't you as an individual it's the whole entire system. So let's just use education, for example. Right. We are literally learning a wrong education. Like even even if we're not even talking about race, like just think about you. Right. Think about your educational experience and how much you learned when you got to college. Then you realize that through K through 12 just wasn't even true.
0: Right. Right.
1: So so the way the system is designed. Right. And. It's designed, and this is what colonization does. Because you got to maintain the colony, you got to maintain power. It says, "How about we keep these people thinking a certain way?" Mm. So, because of this, so many white people actually aren't even aware of their own privilege, their own stance, etc. So they are literally making these statements out of. I actually, I can give them the best intentions. And look and give them. They're making this out of good faith, but they don't recognize how the whole entire system is designed for them to think that way. Yeah. So, so the way to approach this, right? We, I, I would say, of course, approach this lovingly because if you're a Christian, then like you want to speak the truth and love. Approach this lovingly, but approach this in such a way, right? Do thinking. Okay, first, am I thinking about this individually or systemically? If I'm thinking about this systemically, are there ways in which the system is blinding me and hurting people? Mm. And if this is true, how then can you claim to be a Christian, a Christ follower, or however way you are? Doing, I, any, even if you're not a Christian, whatever moral compass you have, how can you make any claim to morality while playing a role in a system? It oppresses groups of people.
0: Right. And I guess becoming aware of your own complicity in that system, right? Even if you're not actively doing anything, um, there's a way in which you're the beneficiary of of, of these structures, right? And, and somehow just becoming aware of that is a big step. Um, I, I want to talk about two particular institutions, okay? Um, yeah. Um, before we um, sign off here for today, I hate to even end the conversation. This has been... Um, so enlightening to me again. But, um, the first is church. Um, so yeah. like, particularly like white churches. I mean, we over and over for the last four years, we've heard about the eighty-one percent of evangelicals that voted for Trump, right? And, oh my God, and, and, I forgot about that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that is atrocious. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: and uh, and you've got, I, and I honestly, I would love to know what those numbers are going to hash out at this election because I suspect it might even go higher because I sus- I suspect that there's been a lot of people who are in the minority who've just abandoned the I- the identity altogether of evangelical, and so those that are left might be even more hardened you know what i mean oh I see um, that's my fear anyway but um and so like so what do you what is the white church's w- complicity and role in all of this um i i just i had a wow. a, a couple of years ago i interviewed um, um tamara johnson about um leaving white churches um this was a couple years ago after her experience in, in white churches where she was just sort of I, it was, I, I don't know that she ever used token, but there, she was sort yeah. of um, suspected or uh, not. The, I don't know the word I'm thinking of. Um, um, she was put up as this sort of like exemplar of her community kind of. Right. Yeah. Um, and all the while, whenever something like this would happen to the black community, you um, nothing was ever said, um, officially, uh, you know, about it. Right. And so, um, and so she felt very kind of abandoned by, um, these white spaces. Right. And so she, um, yeah. went back into her, uh, into a black church. Um, what, what's your perspective on,
1: you know, the white church? Yeah. So I actually, and this is why I was glad that you gave me this platform because I recently became, um, Came to a newer understanding of "quote unquote" the white man's religion. Mm-hmm. So, um, first, let me start with where so that really came from. These like basically uh, African black people um, who recognized how the the God of the slave masters and how basically Christianity um, that was being practiced by Europeans and there was also being used to enslave them could not possibly be the right Christianity. Right. It's like, so they created this distinct, this distinction between what they saw as real Christianity and the white man's religion. That's the, like the general understanding that we have of Christianity. And then along that is, is Africans didn't become Christians until they became in contact with the colonizer. So that means Christianity. For, so for this group who who, who has a problem with the white man's religion, Christianity is a problem because this is what they use from. This is what they use to to get the slaves to feel a certain way so they, they can be OK with their colonization slave. The opiate of the masses translated. Exactly. Yeah. Karl Marx. Right. So um, there's that notion of white man's religion. But I thought about something else. And actually, and, and this can be a dialogue because I would like to hear your feedback about this. So a couple of things. One. I was watching this video on um, whether or not women are sh- uh, women can be preachers, mm. right? And I, I and I don't want to get into convers- on the like theological conversation of whether women can be preachers, right?
0: My mom but was, the by point- the way. <laughs> huh? My mom
1: was, by the way. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> After That's I cool. left the house, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the point is, the the person who made the arguments, he bases so argument on this. He said that women cannot be preachers because there is no biblical precedence for women being senior pastors. Mm. So, like, I went to seminary. I studied the Bible. Where is senior pastors in the Bible? (laughs) And so, I, I had that epiphany. It became more and more clear to me that, um, this Christianity that that is currently practiced in America has very, in very unconscious ways, it is the white man's religion. Yeah. And I actually don't hold to the first view because, like I said before, i realized that there, Africans were Christians. Actually, one of the first church w- was in Africa, right? So there was a Christianity. So Christianity isn't inherently the white man's religion. But Christianity that is practiced right now in America has these very unknown ways in which it perpetuates this white man religion. So so let's talk about this, right? So we think about the, like, church history. We think about the Reformation. Um, we think about the branches that, that many of the churches today come from, whether it's Calvinism. Um, of course, it comes all branches out of Protestantism or whether it's Lutheranism, et cetera, right? I'm just I'm skipping over that history, and I'm guessing we all know that, right? So we think about that history, right? This the the church doctrine, the church dogma, the church on uh, theology, the church's polity, the church's rules and governance literally comes out of that history. Now, what they would say, right, a retort might be okay, where all of this comes out, out of the Bible. So we have a biblical understanding of of our polity, our theology, et cetera. My response to that is this. Even that biblical understanding is still white. Yeah. And that's the part that people miss. So, bring it full circle, right? I actually... So, the reason why this is important is because since it's been thought through, narrated, conceptualized through a white lens, we don't really think about Christianity... From that perspective, during the the early during the first century, during the early church, and then right, so somebody might respond and say, "Actually, no, we do think about the early church and our conceptualizing conceptualizing of Christianity." Well, even in so then in response to that, I would say, our conceptualizing of Christianity, of uh, even from the followers of the way, right when it began in, right. in the Book of Acts, that is through a European lens. And that's the part that so many people miss, so much so that the word religion isn't even in the Bible. Mm. So if, the, if, if religion isn't in the Bible, and what I mean by that, right, if you go look at the original Greek word that I think, what is it, James was like pure religion. this has been translated pure religion, underfelt, They literally didn't even have a word in the Greek mm-hmm. for religion. Which shows that you see what I'm saying, yeah. then, right? That means that this is a, a a white perspective that places religion right there as translation to that word. Yeah. So then, right, if religion isn't in the Bible, how then can we understand Christianity as a religion if we don't if outside of looking at it from the European perspective?
0: Yeah. Yeah. that's exactly it's like you've got a pair of glasses nailed to your head and you can't, and, and they're tinted a certain color, right? And you can only see things from that color because you can't remove those glasses. And, 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 and you don't even know that you have the glasses. That's, that's the, that's the trick, right? (laughs) It's Plato's cave in a lot of ways, right? Um, The, the allegory of the cave. Um, You don't even know that there's a reality because you're just looking at the shadows on the wall and, and, and yeah. And I think that that's one thing that, um, I think just white Christians can't quite ever get at. Right. Um, I'm working on a project about the English poet, Matthew Arnold right now. And, um, The uh, quote from his culture and anarchy that always comes up is, um, how do you make reason and the will of God? And I'm going to have to paraphrase here. How do you make reason and the will of God apparent to people who have a a machinery, a system of thought that they have deemed reason and the will of God that they're stuck in and can't see beyond? Right. Um, And and I think that's what we're dealing with, with the way a lot of Christians deal with race right now, is that they're just. They exactly. they've defined um, the terms in such a narrow way that they um, are unwilling to like see things from another perspective. Right. And, and unfortunately, right. And, go, and, go ahead.
1: And, and what you're saying, right with this process, think about it. It starts with Sunday school. Yeah, absolutely. So then they literally have been socialized this way as children. Yeah. Which means that their thinking is so ingrained. That they're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, they've been thinking about this for several, they've been thinking through this way for several decades. Yeah. So then I hope, what, what I hope the listeners are hearing me to say is this, can you be self-reflexive and look at what is the lens that I am bringing to this situation? What creates this lens? Yeah. What, what shapes this? So if you're saying whatever whatever way you feel about whatever theological view you have, et cetera, what's informing that theological view? And if every single thing informing that is white then maybe that's something you should um, think about.
0: Yeah. And and if for some reason the American flag is a part of your religion, I mean, I think that you've, you've got an infection there <laughs> right. that, that you don't even know is there. That's become natural to right. you, right? Um, um, and another problem I think I see among white Christians, and I, I know I'm keeping you really long. I'm so sorry. Um, no, it's fine. Is um uh, the the just the kind of striving for peace, right? Well, we, yeah. Like they don't want to stir things up, um, because that feels like an offense, right? And and then when the thing that's really annoying to me are the quotes from Martin Luther King that um get oh, yeah. thrown out on Facebook, you know, about this kind of thing, um, which are very narrow and very selective, and in many cases incomplete, right? About his thoughts right, right. Of, on these things, right? And and they focus on um just like don't cause trouble, basically, and yeah. everything will be okay. And, and I just feel like that this kind of this overvaluation of of peace and tranquility, um, the quiet life, is is yeah, a yeah. big problem. I think for actually perf- doing Christianity, like being a Christian in the world. And so, did you? We don't follow up, or you want to I, move I was going to just next, gonna say, that like,
1: this just like I just want to do a plug for. There's this brilliant black thinker by the name of Vincent Hardin. And he wrote a book called the um, Mondo Luther King, the Inconvenient Hero. OK. And he basically traces how um, King has been sanitized, repackaged and presented in such a way to make him more convenient. To white audiences.
0: I, I saw somebody on Facebook, not on my feed. It was on a friend's feed. Actually, like, apparently there's a school of thought that Martin Luther King was a conservative Republican. And, you know, yeah. and, and it's just, it comes out of this, like, decades long kind of effort to kind of um, mythologize
1: um, the man. Right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, they literally stopped King's life in 1963. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he didn't live five more years after that and yeah. say anything else and, like, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um, the last thing I want to talk about, um, if it's okay with you and you can talk about it as much yep. as you want, is the way in which um, academia – I guess we'll come back to where we began. Um, right. Um, academia is also kind of complicit in um, these things. One thing that's been going on, and, and you brought this up for me to bring up, um, it was a great uh, ob- ob- suggestion, um, is – we've seen a plethora of statements from, you know, colleges about what's going on. Um, and I think there's a parallel here to kind of the, the rhetoric versus action of Christianity uh, and the rhetoric versus action of academia. Um, you, um, taught or teach for, uh, Virginia Commonwealth, uh, university, and you were involved with, um, a particular controversy. Um, and, um, and I think it's relevant to the conversation and I'll just yeah, let you talk about yeah.
1: it in whatever way you feel comfortable. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I can't say much, but what I can say is what was publicly available. And there is a, 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 a article that's already out, but from my perspective, um, I was pretty much given, um, out of nowhere shockingly, um, told that I'm no longer teaching. And, I didn't get any warning. I didn't get nothing, right? They just bosses called me in office one day and said, Hey, you're gone. Um, and what's publicly available that I can say was uh it was based on three complaints. The three complaints being um one that a student was offended um by what I but I what I was um teaching, um two that the um and, and it is confusing to say because it wasn't actually a complaint, but that I, I live streamed my class. So um, that's the thing, right? How can you make it a complaint about live streaming? Yeah. Right. No student in is Yeah. I did three. Like I, I laugh every time I say this because it's kind of hard to actually to articulate what I'm about to say. But a complaint about a midterm participation grade. Like, and yeah. you, and you are a professor.
0: I use them to goad people to participate more in the second half. I, yes. That
1: was the whole entire purpose, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. That, that was my plan. So for me, right, even if, right, let's just say they were three substantial complaints. Have you heard of a professor being lo- like literally taken out of the classroom and contract not renewed for three complaints of that nature?
0: No. No.
1: So something's not right, right? And and
0: the the classes, um I don't know, I don't want to say anything, I guess, because oh, yeah,
1: yeah. oh, no, it, it was available. They were they were on I teach Africana studies.
0: Yeah, okay. So they're African So like
1: yes, yeah, that's a very good point. So like I teach <laughs> the stuff I teach is gonna make people Yeah. Like feel a certain way.
0: I, I taught a class on the horror film last semester, and it's like people being offended that they saw a scary movie, right? I mean, it's like that's the name of the class, right? You, know, you can't be offended by the subject matter of, that is in the
1: name of the class, right? And so, yeah. So, like this is so this is um, we are actually unfortunately at a like a cross place, like crosshair situation where, um, and maybe I would like to hear your experience, but. Um. It seems like there's a rise in student complaints. Have you seen that or? You know, I
0: have to say I have not. I mean, it's, again, a sign of my whatever privilege, I guess. Um, I, Other than, you know, the people who don't like me on the course reviews, uh, the evaluations, right? I have never been – you know, talk to about
1: anything like this. Um, so you actually unknowingly proved like yeah. one of the things I was researching. Yeah. So I actually went on ahead. So of course, after that happened, so this is the part that I do want to um, say, it was completely traumatic and devastating. I, I,
0: I can imagine that it was. I mean, just the, the precarity of being in academia anyway is scary enough. And then to be subjected to this kind of
1: uncertainty, it's got to be just like um, uh, horrifying. So think about it from my perspective, right? I actually I didn't say this earlier, but I got my PhD for the College of Women there. Right? So I mean, have you heard of that school? Yeah. So it's, it's a pretty reputable school. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I went to a pretty reputable school. Uh um, as you know, like we're on here talking about my book yeah. that I published. I also had another special issue on hip hop around the world come out. Um I became I got promoted to the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hip hop studies mm-hmm. And all of this happens um and then like you know my background of where I came from. So like I I thought and I, and I to the extent I still believe it's true, I thought I was living out my purpose and doing like living out my dream and doing what I was meant to do. So to have that to stop so abruptly, made me question what am I supposed to do?
0: Yeah.
1: Like, really like made me question my existence. Like, why am I here if I thought that every single thing that was pointing to God into me being in this location is all of a sudden taken away.
0: Yeah.
1: And the precarity of this, which goes along with what you're saying, as I researched this, actually white men rarely get complaints, but women and black people get complaints on a regular basis. Yeah.
0: I, you know, I have to, I fully own that. And you're, and it's totally been my experience too. Like I deserve to be in academia less than anybody. Right. And um, I've had very kind of little trouble with it. Um, and honestly, and, and honestly, I feel because I also feel kind of uneasy about the professional machinery of academia, I don't make people call me Dr. Anderson um, and I just kind of let them decide what to call me. I also realize that that's a sign of my own privilege because a lot of people don't get afforded the um, just the the whatever, uh, deference to authority. Right, right. Um, if, if you're a woman or a person of color that me as a bald white guy does. Right. And so, um, yeah. and so I, yeah, I realized that even though that that's a luxury for me to be able to kind of disregard the doctor, um, when introducing yeah. myself to people. Cause they, they definitely love calling me Travis. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know how you feel. Do you feel okay about that or not?
1: Well, it, 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 I, 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 I'm okay with it to an extent in that um like I'm I don't think I I don't think of myself as better than them. Yeah. But I don't like that it's a part of um thinking that I'm not as smart or yeah. as qualified. And that's why I made the William yeah. and Mary reference because it seemed like based on my academic um I guess you can say status, that I would be like yeah. very like qualified, et cetera your your I'm CV, treated like dirt.
0: Yeah, your CV um is authoritative, right? Uh, and and yeah. and you would one would think that it would um you know it would call for a better treatment. Um right within right. the
1: institution, right? right? The institution. Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm saying. It's yeah. like wh- why am I treated being treated like I'm just uh like subpar scholar? Yeah.
0: The institution that now i 'm um, not i don't know if if that institution has made a statement or not, but many institutions have made statements of support um but if there isn't like actual tangible physical support uh in the classroom right. um and in the profession then it's it's a little bit hollow um and just like it's it's the academic version of thoughts and prayers um right that <laughs> and
1: <laughs> that is so true. That is so true.
0: And so, um, I just wanted to kind of point out that, again, to emphasize the role of systems, uh, in the perpetuation right, right. Of, of white supremacy and, and to acknowledge where I can my own, the way I benefit from them. Right. And, yeah. um, Travis geez, I just thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation yeah, definitely, definitely um any kind of last thoughts or uh things you want to get out um
1: before uh, uh yeah. people can find you or your work or yeah so hood scholar if you just google search for hood scholar um I'm on Facebook and my and then you just do Google Scholar search for Travis Harris you can find um my work there and I'll just say like um and I didn't say this earlier but hey I never take for granted when people like invite me on so <laughs> I really appreciate that like well I like you got to remember, like uh, you know I didn't I didn't share this part of the story but like in growing up in the hood like I was at the bottom bottom like so my family was literally like poor homeless um struggling to survive on a regular basis right Yeah. so when I go from like when I reflect on literally being poor and homeless to being like Uh, Some of a PhD. Yeah. Like doing podcasts, is like, wow, it's pretty humble.
0: Yeah. Well, gosh, like I said, anytime you want to come back to talk about anything, let me know and I'll make room in the schedule. Um, and hopefully those of you out there who listen to your own podcasts, um, hopefully you reach out to Travis um, to, uh, to, uh, to appear. He's um, just an amazing person. And I learned so much from this conversation. I can't thank you enough. Um, and again, oh, the book is uh, Beyond Christian Hip Hop, A Move Toward Christians and Hip Hop edited by Erica Galt and Travis Harris, um, hood scholar, Travis Harris. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, please do so. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, uh, and thanks for listening, everybody.